Glad to have you with us today at the Antioch campus of Blue Valley. And yes, Julie is out of town. So uh, you, you need not worry about that. She would have said, really? Um, I probably would have worn it anyway, but at least there would have been a break, you know, before I left the house. The nature of this campus is such that many who worship here come from more formal and liturgical backgrounds. And with that, many of you come to Blue Valley familiar with an image that you have seen superimposed on cross beams of the Christian cross, the letters I-H-S, frequently, frequently encircled. It's likely that many of you grew up seeing this image in one way or another in the sanctuary in which you and your family worshiped. Even if you grew up in a church like ours, if you sat close enough to the front, you could see on the old school Lord's Supper tables uh, the letters IHS engraved. It has an interesting history uh, as a symbol. The letters first appeared on coins minted by a Byzantine emperor in the 600s and 700s, though they likely had a very long history before that. At their root, they are the first three letters of Christ's name in Greek. But as Christianity spread, they began to take on phrases from the languages in which Christianity was expanding. For instance, in Latin, they came to mean Isus Humilis Societis, the humble society of Jesus, or Isus Hominem Salvator, Jesus the Savior of men. And so it's not surprising that as Christianity expanded into regions where the English language was developing, that it began to take on uh, phrases from our language. And in our language today, uh, those letters I-H-S mean in His service. And that's the title of today's message. So if you would please open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 28. We are in a series of messages from Exodus, which if you're a part of Blue Valley, you know, and we are in what I would call the flyover country of the book of Exodus. And by that, I mean we are in the section of the book that Bible readers frequently skip or skim because they have a level of cultural and religious distance from our own day that we tend to view them as no consequence whatsoever for our lives. And yet, hopefully, as we have seen these past few weeks, these messages, these passages do impact us directly, though they impact us differently from the Jewish people in the day of Moses. For the Jews of the time of Moses in which Exodus was written, the instructions in which we currently find ourselves were meant to provide uh, the details last week of uh, what was required to construct the tabernacle in the wilderness. And this week, those details are to guide the worship that would take place in that tabernacle. And it accomplishes that task in our passage this week by uh, focusing on the priest who would lead worship and then some aspects of the worship that would take place in that tabernacle. So as we've done uh, for a few weeks now, we'll summarize broadly uh, today's chapters before we spend time thinking about them and their impact on us today. So I hope you found Exodus chapter 28 in your copy of God's Word. Follow along as I begin reading riveting material for most of you, uh, beginning in verse 1. 
Moses says, then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priest, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. And you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. And you shall speak to all the skillful whom I filled with the spirit of skill, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. They are the garments that they shall make. These are the garments they shall make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a rope, a cloak of checker work, a turban, and a sash. They shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, and his sons to serve me as priests. They, meaning the artisans crafting this, shall receive gold and blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twine linen. Now, the rest of the chapter is going to go on and describe these six garments in detail. But let's make sure that we know what these garments are. And we'll do that first by focusing on the breastpiece and the ephod together because after Exodus, they're frequently referred to as one thing, as the ephod in, again, the rest of the Old Testament. Now, the ephod was a linen garment of two pieces, front piece and a back piece, that was held together at the shoulders by a stone on each shoulder, something like a button. And these buttons were set in gold and held the two pieces of the garment together with what we'll just call fancy gold chains. Now, on these stones were engraved the names of the tribes of Israel, six on one side, six on the other, which symbolized the priest in their priestly work representing the entire nation of Israel when they ministered before the Lord. Now, the breastpiece was essentially just a large pouch with two stones, and these stones were called the Uman and the Thuman, which I know are children's names that now those of you in childbearing years are riveted and focused on for your children so they can be cool and known in the social media world. Uh, the priest used the Uman and the Thuman to uh, discern God's will, the idea being that they would cast them like dice, and then the Lord controlled how they fell, which would reveal His will, although the Bible is not explicit and never really tells us how that was determined. The pouch also had another symbolic representation of the people of Israel in the 12 precious stones that were on it with the names of the tribes of Israel engraved on each one of those stones. Now, the robe and the sash also worked together. The priest wore it underneath the ephod and the breastpiece, and it was cinched at the waist by a sash. The standout features of the robe were the tassels shaped like pomegranates interspersed with gold bells around the bottom of the robe, a feature which served a critically important function, which is described for us in verse 35 of Exodus 28. Why don't you find that? Here's what it says, and it shall be on Aaron when he ministers, and the sound of the bells shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. So you want to ask, well, what about these bells prevented the death of the priest? Well, they served as a means of kind of announcing the presence of the priest when he entered into the holy place, the, the holy of holies, to minister before the Lord. And it wasn't because God could be startled or surprised that someone was suddenly in his space, but it was done as a way of reminding the one going in that you do not go casually 
into the presence of the Lord, which becomes very apparent when you get to the book of Leviticus, which we'll cover in a message in the middle of July. Now, the last piece described in Exodus 28 is the turban, but the turban, but the emphasis is actually on the gold plate fastened to the front of it, which says holy before the Lord. And we are told in verse 38 that this place, this plate symbolized the priest bearing the guilt of the people as their representative when he made sacrifices to the Lord on their behalf. And then you get to chapter 29, and chapter 29 talks about how the priests were consecrated, something like being ordained for the service of the Lord. Now, uh, there are lots of details in that chapter, but essentially the consecration had two general purposes. First, to set the priest apart for service to God as symbolized by being washed and being clothed in the vestments and then anointed with oil, and then also having their sin atoned for to do the work, which is symbolized by the sacrifices. Then you get to chapters 30 and 31, which are held loosely together in that they focus less on the priest and their work and more on the worship of the people themselves. The smoke rising from the burning of the incense that is talked about in these chapters in ancient times represented a visual representation of the prayers of the people going up before God, reminding them of how important prayer was. And then there's a census tax that is mentioned in verses 11 through 16 of chapter 31 that seems, as you're reading it, kind of out of place, but it exists here to show that every adult in Israel had an obligation to contribute to the upkeep of the tabernacle, so it then functions something like our offerings do that we collect each week in support of the work of the church. Then a bronze basin is mentioned for washing in verses 17 through 21, symbolizing the need for purity before the Lord, and kind of a recipe is given for the incense, and the reason it's given in such detail is because, again, it's a way to show the need for obedience of following precisely the Lord's instruction. And then there is a reference to the two men who God would use to accomplish the artistry of the tabernacle as has been described since chapter 25. And it's placed in these chapters, uh, which will be critically important here in a minute for what we're going to do with today's message, to show how both priest and common man were to accomplish the work of God. Then there's the Sabbath instruction that closes it all out to help the people to remember to trust the Lord, which is part of worship. We think of weekends as kind of a divine right, but what we forget is that we are privileged enough we don't have to work seven days a week. If you are in a job even today, if you're in agriculture, there's no day off. You have to work all seven days, but especially in developing countries and in ancient times, you had to work all seven days in order to just be able to eke out a living. And so by the people taking a Sabbath day, a day off, they were demonstrating in a way distinct from their culture that they were putting their trust in the Lord. And that is the summary of those four chapters. And I know everyone right now is so intrigued, you're going to go back and read every single detail uh, when you get home. But you are free to ask, what am I supposed to do with that? How is even that summary going to enhance my commitment to follow Jesus? And that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time thinking about together today. 
Now, when I read Old Testament passages that are focusing on the priesthood, two New Testament teachings come to mind. One is the teaching that Jesus is our high priest. And the author of the New Testament book of Hebrews makes this point over and over and over again by uh, comparing the inherent shortcomings of an earthly priest when compared to Jesus. The earthly priests were sinners like the rest of us. Jesus knew no sin. The earthly high priest therefore had to offer up sacrifices for their own sin. Jesus had no such need. The earthly priest had to offer up sacrifices for sin continually and repetitively because people continued to sin and the sacrifice was not enough. But Jesus was the sacrifice for sin once and for all. Earthly high priests had to intercede for their people in kind of a shrouded secrecy, kept distant in symbolic ways from the presence of God. But Jesus intercedes for us in the unfiltered presence of of the glory of God the Father. All of those things come to mind anytime I read an Old Testament passage about the priesthood. But this is where my mind goes when reading a passage like ours today. I want you to hold your spot in Exodus, and I want you to find 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. It's where we're going to spend the majority of the rest of our time today is kind of home base. If you don't want to turn there, it'll be on your screens. But let me read it to you. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter, in that verse, does what a lot of biblical writers do and just kind of start stacking words on top of one another to fill as tiny a space as possible with as much meaning as possible until he reaches his climactic point. So he says, because of Jesus, we aren't just special, we're a chosen race. We aren't just special, but we're really special. We're a royal priesthood. We aren't just really special, but we're really, really special. We're a holy nation. We aren't just really, really special, but we're really, really, really special. We are a people for God's own possession. So what Peter is doing, he's kind of shouting from the rhetorical mountaintop that because of Christ, we have become the very people of God. But I want you to notice the purpose for becoming the people of God. It's to proclaim His excellencies. Not for you to have a wonderful life, but to proclaim his excellencies, which is the means by which you have a wonderful life. Because of our identity with Christ, we are all, as the church, the world's priests. We are intermediaries between a lost world and a holy God. Those in our world who don't identify with Christ don't have the access to Christ that you and I have. So our purpose, and this is Peter's precise point, is that we are all to understand that we are called to be ministers to the world on Christ's behalf. 
Our ministry as the priest of God is to serve as the go-between between God and man by proclaiming the truth that Jesus saves, that he is the only path available between light and dark, the difference between life and death in this life and eternity. And what a blessing it is for us and for those to whom we share the excellencies of God when we fulfill this purpose. The point that Peter is making is that we are to live our lives in his service, in service of the one who saved us, all of us. Every one of us is a minister on God's behalf to the world if we have given ourselves to Jesus as Savior. So here's the question I have for you this morning. Is that how you approach your life? Do you approach your life saying that my purpose is to proclaim the excellencies of the one who has called me from darkness into his marvelous light? When our kids were in junior high and they were beginning to think critically and in more depth about what they were going to be as adults, I used to tell them all the time that it really didn't matter to me what they became. They didn't have to be a pastor like dad or an educator like mom. But they did have to do something, <laughs> clearly, because my basement's off limits long term. They did have to do something that made a difference, that made a difference. I told them as Caleb once shared with me, and he's moved off, so who cares? I'll show on him. Here's what he said. He said, Dad, I think God wants me to design video games. And I said, well, then I think you better find someone to pay for college. Because, because that is not what you're geared for. And his youth minister said, why are you putting that kind of pressure on Caleb? And I said, do you think for a second that God would place my son in our family and in the churches that we have served and use all of that to equip him for someone to waste their life? No, I don't think that. And he says, well, that's a lot of pressure. It's the exact pressure that Peter puts on us. He says that we are all called to the ministry. Now, that ministry may manifest itself in a lot of different place, places. God may call us to different things. He may call us to education or medicine or ministry or science or finance or mechanics or hourly labor or being a stay-at-home mom. Regardless of what he calls you to, your purpose isn't that thing. Your purpose, your purpose is based on your identity as a priest of a holy God and your purpose is to make the only real difference you can in this life by making known through your vocation, using it as a platform, the excellencies of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And if you don't wake up every single day, regardless of where you are vocationally in life, with that as your purpose and that as your heartbeat, you are absolutely wasting your life. Now, with that in mind, 
I want us to close by thinking back on the Exodus passage through the lens that we are called to the priesthood, to be intermediaries between God and the world to make him known. And doing so, I want to highlight two important truths they illustrate. First, God calls his people to specific tasks. I want you to go back, and if you don't want to go all the way back in your copy, you can look at the screen. I want you to think about what we read in verse 1 of Exodus 28. Then bring near to you Aaron your brother and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu and Eleazar and Ithamar. This is the first time that something hinted at thus far in Exodus becomes explicit. Aaron and his sons and their descendants, and by extension, as becomes clear later, the entire tribe of Levi of which they were a part are set apart by God to be priests. And here's the underlying idea behind that that we frequently never think about. Only God can make someone a priest in Old Testament Israel, regardless of how desperately someone, say, from the tribe of Judah might have wanted to become a priest. Only God could make someone a priest by right of their birth. But Aaron and his sons aren't the only ones, and this is key. This, they're not the only ones called to a specific task in this extended passage. Turn to verse 1 of chapter 31 and pay very close attention to what we read there. The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the son of Judah, and I have filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, and cutting stones for setting, and in carving wood, to work in every craft. So there, there we have a man called by God to a task in service of him that is different than the priesthood, the task of doing the artisan work that would be required to construct the tabernacle in which the priest would minister. It's different than the task of priesthood, but he's still called by God to do it. Different tasks, but in service of the same God. That is what the New Testament teaches is true of every single follower of Jesus. In the New Testament book of Romans, which uh, our elder Mike read from earlier, Paul wrote, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one in the body of Christ and individually members of one another. What does that mean? It means that God has arranged all of us within the church to accomplish certain tasks. Listen, each person here who's a follower of Jesus has a call on your life. Each of us has a different call, but each of us has a call. So in light of that, Paul goes on to say in Romans 12, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Now, if it is true that what we see illustrated in the Old Testament and taught explicitly in the New is that each one of us has been called by God 
to perform specific tasks to serve his kingdom, then our purpose in life is to figure out what that task is and then to do it. So then we ask one another, well, how do I figure out what that is? And I propose to you that one of the chief ways to figure out what God has called you to do is by sucking air in and breathing it out. It's by living. By living. And, and I think that doing that involves being with the church family by paying attention to your church family. When I began to realize that a specific task to which God was calling me was vocational ministry and then eventually ministry as a pastor, my church family, when they heard that, affirmed me in it. They could see that this was what God was doing in my life, and they let me know this. They, they could, could see when I would perform ministry tasks like preaching terribly and helping out around the church that God was, was, a, was moving in my life in this way. And so one of the key ways I figured out that I'm supposed to do what I'm doing is through the church. Now, my call may have been to vocational ministry, but the same process is true of what God is calling you to do for his kingdom. For those of you who work with our age grade in ministry, you have ministry leaders and peers who see and affirm or not affirm that that is what God is calling you to. I mean, frankly, some of us don't need to get anywhere near children. We frighten them, and we lean into the church to say, this isn't your gig, all right? Uh, think of it in terms of worship. Some of you serve in worship ministry, and you have ministry leaders and peers who see God at work or not at work in uh, the task of, of leading worship. Someone may come and say, you know what? I feel like God has gifted me to to sing solos and lead the church in worship. And the church may say, mm, no, no, he's, he's not. <laughs> he, he's not done that. My point, and I'm being facetious, is to say that the church plays a critical role in helping us figure out what it is that God is calling us to do. But listen, I don't want you to think that this call to specific tasks from God is just about holding an official role in church. The reformer Martin Luther believed that the whole world provides an opportunity to serve God. And the reformer John Calvin built on this idea by teaching that every person's occupation is a post and station assigned to him by God for his glory in building up his kingdom. I've, be I've always believed this. It's very Protestant to believe this. I have a very dear friend, decades-long friend in the ministry, that every time I mention this just kind of flinches because he believes with all of his heart that he has a call that is special and different than a call for normal people. And I, I hate to tell him that's very Catholic, but that's not very Protestant. Listen, I get the appeal of it. Think of all the, the vestments that the priests get to wear. I mean, they're beautiful. And frankly, I would like to be able to do that because it would assign to me something to wear that I don't have to think about. And you're thinking, do you really think about that a lot? <laughs> but, but Protestant theology, basic Protestant theology, is that all of us are called by God to serve him. So be our task education 
or medicine, or ministry, or science, or finance, or mechanics, or hourly labor, or raising children, those occupations are extension of God's work through the church. Because while God's work is located in the church, the church isn't located in a particular place. The church is located wherever any of us go in our daily life. This flyover passage in Exodus reminds us that God has called every person here to a specific task. And if that is true, then one of the most important things, maybe the most important thing in life aside from surrendering to follow Jesus, is to figure out why you're still here on planet Earth. So, God calls his people to a specific task. Second thing this section of Scripture teaches us is that God equips, equips his people for specific tasks. That's the last thing I think it shows us. With the call comes equipping. Let me continue reading in a part of verse uh, or chapter 31 that I, I didn't read. Look at verse 6. And behold, I've appointed with him Ohaliab, the son of Ashimach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. So Bezalel wasn't the only one who had been given the ability by God to do the artisan work constructing the tabernacle. So had a man named Ohaliab, and, and, and I hope you caught it, a whole lot of other men had been given by God the ability to perform that task. When God calls to a task, He equips for the task. He will never call us to do something that He does not also equip us to be able to do. So how does God equip us? Again, I submit to you, one of the main ways He equips us is by us sucking in air and living. The the owners of the radio station that my dad managed until he bought it when I was in high school, were an older couple named Galen and Eleanor Nori Gilbert. In many ways, they were like second grandparents for me, godly, godly people. Eleanor, a few years ago, went on to be with Jesus. Galen's, I think, 100 years old now, and he's still alive and kicking. And not long after I made my belief that God had called me to public ministry, I was riding in a car with Nori and my mom, and Nori, wise, intelligent woman, was quizzing me on my call to preach, and I was sharing that with her. Now, I had a different work experience than I'm guessing anybody else here had growing up. You pushed carts at the grocery store or whatever. I was a DJ on a country radio, very traditional country radio station from the time I turned 14, which was the earliest that a person could be licensed by the FCC and work at a radio station back when the FCC did licensing for that kind of thing. And as Nori began to talk to me about my call, she said this. I've never forgotten it. She said, you've learned so much about speaking and thinking on your feet, being a DJ, and it's going to serve you well as a pastor one of these days. And I thought in my little 16-year-old head, well, what do you know? But you know what? She's right. She was saying that God was equipping me to do something before I even knew what the something was. She was dead on. I've got no desire 
to return to the broadcast booth, but the broadcast booth helps me every single day. And this is how God prepares every single one of us to do His work. He arranges the circumstances of our lives. He has given you unique life experiences, both good and bad, both celebratory and tragic, and natural abilities that are perfectly suited to the specific task He has called you to perform for His kingdom. And He's positioned you with people that the church in a building will never reach. Never reach. And giving you the opportunity where He's placed you to make known the excellencies of the one who's called you from darkness into everlasting life. And so, as we close today, my call to you is simple. God has called you to make a kingdom difference. You have a specific task to fulfill, and He has equipped you to do it. And to fail to find out what it is and to exercise it to the very best of your ability would not only be sinful, it would be for you to miss out on the purpose for you being on planet Earth and therefore cut you off from the absolute joy of wherever you find yourself being, doing the work that God has called you to do. Keep that in mind while we go to the Lord in prayer.